In the decade of the 1970s, even the great hero Superman was not spared the ravages of money-hungry producers. In these times of fear and confusion, the job of bringing him to screen was the responsibility of Richard Donner, a popular American director whose demand for verisimilitude had become a symbol of hope for fans of Superman. Welcome to episode 115 of the Man of Screen Podcast, and I'd like to offer you a very special welcome to Superman the Movie Month, in which myself and a whole slew of guests will be discussing Superman the Movie over the course of four episodes. There will be four episodes dedicated to the film itself, and there'll be a fifth episode at the end of the month talking about the extended edition, the three-hour TV cut of the film. And I really think you guys are going to enjoy what we've got on tap. And I really, and I'm really looking forward to bringing this to you. When I started this, uh, I knew this was going to be probably one of the bigger projects of the podcast, and I wondered for a time if I'd bitten off more than I could chew. I had sent, uh, I sent a mass uh, Facebook message to you know about thirty or so people in the podcast circle that I run it, mostly uh, two true freaks podcasters and uh, fire water guys. And others, you know, kind of seeing who'd be interested in joining me. And I got a response from, like, 25 people initially saying they were interested. And that was a month before I was going to record anything. Maybe even two months. And, you know, over time, you know, people had to drop out for various reasons. Not everybody was available. You know, these things happen when you're trying to schedule a whole bunch of recordings. So, But I did get about a group of about 10 that were able to join me over the course of uh, this month. And you're going to be hearing from them over the course of the episodes. During this particular episode, I'm going to talk to both one of my cohorts from Fear of the Walking Dead cast, Brian Hughes, also the co-host of Third Degree Burn, and I'm also going to be with be joined by Patrick Delmore of the uh, the Next Generation's First Generation, I believe his podcast is a commentary podcast regarding Star Trek: The Next Generation. So I'm going to be joined by them in the next segment, and we're going to talk about. The first, let's say, quarter of Superman the movie. If you're following along with the uh, theatrical cut, it'll be chapters 1 through 10. That's as far as the uh, theatrical cut Blu-ray goes. And if you're watching the uh, director's cut or the extended edition, that'll be chapters 1 through 11. And obviously, you should know by now, if you are a subscriber to the new DC Universe streaming service, you will have access to Superman the movie there. However, you will not have any access to the entire film. You will only have access to 
the theatrical version, at least as of this recording. I don't know if there's plans to add the other versions later, but as of right now, the only cut of Superman the movie available on the new DC Universe streaming service is the uh, theatrical cut. And obviously, let's run through some details of the uh, the movie, some quick facts. The film was released on December 15th, 1978, written by Mario Puzo and directed by Richard Donner, produced by Alexander and Ilya Salkind. Cast includes Marlon Brando as Jarrell, Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor, Christopher Reeve as Clark Kent and Superman, Glenn Ford, Jonathan Kent, Margot Kidder as Lois Lane, Jackie Cooper as Perry White, Mark McClure as Jimmy Olsen, Ned Beatty as Otis, Valerie Perrine as Eve Tessmacher, Susanna York as Lara, Terrence Stamp as General Zod, Sarah Douglas as Ursa, Jack O'Halloran as Nan, Phyllis Daxter as Martha Kent. And that's really all of the cast that is uh, really needs to be mentioned. So like I said, basically what I said so before I'm joined by Brian and Patrick, let's get to some feedback. I have feedback to address from a few people this week. First of which is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen episode 104. Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. It's a little interesting that Exploration Earth and the 50-foot woman deal with threats at opposite ends of the size scale, with the tiny aliens in the first and the giant scientists in the second. I wonder if that was planned by the writers or just coincidence. It's not entirely clear to me just how much planning went into these episodes. You asked about the attack of the killer bees in those power record stories. There was a story called The Killer Bees on one of those in 1978. And Dave uh, provided a link that hopefully I'll remember to put in the show notes. In The Lion Men, I realize it's cartoon science, but I think splitting the Earth into five pieces would be cataclysmic in much less than the three-hour time frame the Super Friends are working in. In Day of the Rats, I must continue to wonder why they created Black Vulcan rather than use Black Lightning. It would have been odd for DC not to give the rights to Black Lightning, but allow Hanna-Barbera to create a virtual duplicate of that character. I'd love to know the full story here. I'm looking forward to soon hearing about the Legion of Doom, since I enjoy, quote-unquote, real villains. Live long and prosper, Dave. And thank you, Dave, for writing in. I really don't have anything to add, but thank you for confirming that I wasn't crazy. I do remember that Killer Bee's uh, power records, and like I said, hopefully I'll remember to put that link in the show notes. But I did have that once upon a time. I might even still have it at my parents' house, as far, but I don't think I have anything to play it on. Thank you, Dave, for writing in. Now I have a Facebook comment from Steve J. Rogers, and he is writing in regarding Black Lightning. Steve writes, Note on the Black Lightning Vulcan deal with Super Friends. Come to find out that it was due to Tony Isabella being paid creator rights fees for Black Lightning to be used. So Hanna-Barbera decided to create their own character instead. All right, well, thanks, uh, Steve. And uh, that's certainly something that I was thinking that they just didn't want to Somebody didn't want to pay for use of the character yet. I really wonder what Tony Isabella's reaction would have been to uh, the character of Black Vulcan, which is such a carbon copy of Black Lightning, with some minor differences, but I don't think the differences are enough that you can really think of Black Vulcan without thinking of Black Lightning. Thank you, uh, Steve, for uh, informing us of that. And I've got an additional uh, Facebook comment here from Brian Rosen. He's commenting on episode 104. Okay. So I don't remember the giving Gleek a bath scene. After hearing your perspective on this scene, I'm thankful not for not having a good memory of this. <laughs> yeah, I kind of agree with you, Brian. I kind of wish I didn't have a very good memory of this, having seen it as an adult. But what Brian's referring to is uh, one of the scenes where the Wonder Twins were giving Gleek a bath, and uh, Zan was the bath water, and I think Jaina was washing him down with a part of herself. It was just very weird. Go back to episode 104, and you'll hear me talk about it. So, my Brian added one more comment, and both of these comments, you can find them in the uh, Two True Freaks podcast group under the uh, episode posting for 100, episode 104. Brian writes, I do remember the 50-foot woman. Was Giganta a Wonder Woman villain in the comic books by this time? If so, did that influence Hanna-Barbera in creating Dr. Zahn for this episode? 
Well, Brian, since you asked, Giganta was uh, made her first appearance in Wonder Woman number nine in the summer of 1944, and was created by William Moulton Marston, the creator of Wonder Woman. So yes, Giganta was definitely a uh, Wonder Woman villain by this time, and Doctor Zahn could have very well been inspired by Giganta. Especially since uh, the producers actually used Giganta as one of the villains in Challenge of the Super Friends. I don't know for sure that that was the inspiration, but why not? I just find it funny that they created Dr. Zahn in uh, Season 2 and then in Season 3 he used Giganta. So, there's that. I'd like to thank everybody for writing in. You can write in at manascreen at gmail.com or you can do what Brian and Steve did and leave uh, posts on the uh, comments on the various Facebook posts. So now I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then I'm going to come back with... The first part of Superman the movie, and, and when I'll be joined by Brian Hughes and Patrick Delmore. Hang around, folks. Love him or hate him, everybody's got something to say about John Byrne. He ruined the X-Men when he left. That John Byrne, he's a sexist pig. The only thing bigger than John Byrne's ego is... Oh, wait, there isn't anything bigger than John Byrne's ego. John Byrne? Oh... He he just draws the greatest butt on Superman. It looks so good. John Byrne is the greatest artist I've ever seen. Wait, who is he? John Byrne's 1986 Man of Steel series gave us the core reimagining of Superman that is still with us today. Third Degree Byrne, a podcast about all things John Byrne. The good, the bad, and the legendary. Join Tim Elliott and Brian Hughes as they look over the nearly five decades body of work of one of the most influential comic book creators in the last 50 years. Third Degree Burn can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes. I've got a question, though. I just am curious. Why? Doesn't Green Lantern have any junk? I've got uh, two uh, freaks with me uh, this time around. I have uh, Brian Hughes and uh, Patrick Delmore. Say hello, guys. Hello, guys. Hi. <laughs> All right. And on and this, the uh, the opening uh, episode of Superman, the movie month, we're going to be talking about as the Blu-ray stands, chapters one through ten, if you're watching the theatrical cut, and one through eleven, if you're watching the extended edition, basically from the beginning of the movie through the funeral of Jonathan Kent, if you're keeping up with us at home. So before we uh, get a, get into that, I just want to go around the room a little bit, you know, just talk a little bit about our origin stories uh, with this movie. I think Brian may be the oldest of us here. I think Pat's a little closer to my age. Yeah. So, so Brian might actually remember when this film came out. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was, I was 13 years old when the movie came out. Um, I was already, or, or 12 years old, um, I was already considering myself a comic book collector at the time. And so I was very, very excited to see this. And I got my dad to, to take me. And uh, while the, the multiplexes were opening up all over the place, 
dad made sure to take us to the Ridgely Theater, which is like the it, it's not it, it's not the biggest and the best, but it's very um, austere and old fashioned. You know, it's got a balcony up above, and it's got the huge, huge screen like you don't see like you didn't see in the multiplexes when they first started. And so, you know, we go there and we're sitting dead center of the audience to watch this thing. And uh, I, I tell you, that's a hard thing because my dad hates crowds. He hates going to stuff, you know, to the theaters opening night. But he knew I couldn't be denied. And so it was my dad, my sister and myself and I believe my friend Clifford Eggers. And we went and saw it. And of course, you know, as soon as it was over, you know, you're just like, you're trying to fly as you're, you know, walking out to the car, you're jumping in the air, trying to fly. And my sister and I both, you know, were just like, wow, it was the greatest thing ever. And my dad just had that, um, he had that smile on his face because, you know, it's like that was one of those things, seeing seeing us so excited about something after that. And, uh, you know, that, that carried on every time, you know, I mean, after that, when Superman 2 came out, he made sure to, to, you know, take us to the nice theater and uh, do that because he, he wanted to, to have that experience himself to see us like that. So it was really, really cool. A lot of fun. And I, I can't tell you how many times I saw it in the theater because after it did its run, its regular run, it started showing up at the the multiplex theaters that were opening up all over the place after that. And so you could go early in the day and pay like a buck twenty five uh, for a matinee show at the Hewland 10 or Hewland 6 back then and watch that or Jaws or Star Wars over and over and over. So it was one of those things I saw so many times that I, I know every every inch of it by heart. Now, this was about a year and a half after Star Wars, I believe. Mm-hmm. I, I always said if there were two uh, movie premieres I wish I could have been around for, was this one in Star Wars. I mean, I don't, I don't think this movie got the crowds for like Star Wars did, but did it draw crowds? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, when... When we, we got there early, Dad made sure to get us there early. And this is for a, like an afternoon show and on a Saturday. It wasn't, it wasn't Friday night. That's right. It was Saturday. And we got there uh, like at noon to see a 3 o'clock show. So we had to sit for a good while. But, but he wanted to make sure that we got the good seats. And there was a line around the block at the theater. And again, this is a single screen theater, you know. And I mean, all of this was an effort on my father's part because he hates that kind of stuff, you know. So it was really, you know, I could tell he was making an effort for us. Uh, definitely years later, you sit there and you think about things like that. And you're like, wow, that was really cool, you know, because, you know, he looks at all that stuff. You know, he likes the fantasy. He likes that kind of stuff. He likes sci-fi and all that. But he never got into it like I did. Right. But, yeah, that's I. so, yeah, you know, it's like uh, I don't remember what the question was now. <laughs> well, it, it was about the crowds. Uh, yeah, the crowds came out, but, and uh, obviously they did. Yeah, and then the theater was packed, both lower and upper balcony. Uh, I mean, the, the upper balcony and, and the and the lower area. And of course, this is one of those theaters where they actually had curtains on the screen. And so when the movie ended and they start running the credits, you see Christopher Reeve going, you know, smiling and and everything. Right. And he goes on, and then the credits start. And then the curtains come in. They don't come in all the way. They just come in part of the way. It's their way of letting you know it's over and you can go ahead and get up and leave. Right. And uh, But that was that moment when the crowd just, you know, applauded. And, of course, it was a lot of kids and a lot of, you know, lot, you know kids with their parents. But, I mean, everybody everybody really seemed to enjoy it. Of course, I was just so jazzed by what I had seen that uh, I, I don't know if any other person really affected me. Like, I, I, I myself was affected. I know my sister was affected, too. And she is two years older than me. 
right? So obviously we're not going to get to to any point where he's Superman in in this episode. But you know, just what was your reaction the first time you saw Christopher Reeve on the screen as uh, as Superman? Well, you know, it's it's funny. I sit there and I think back to uh, the, what it made me think of was. Uh, there is a Blue Ribbon Digest. The very first Blue Ribbon Digest that, that DC put out was a Superman Digest. And it's got this beautiful front cover. And I want to say it's Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Praise be his name. And, uh, and uh, that right there, you know, when, when I saw Christopher Reeve standing there in costume, I'm like, wow, he looks just like that. You know, he looked just like the comic book, not like the Kurt Swan Superman, but what I saw on the cover of that Blue Ribbon Digest. And, you know, it's like, that's that's one of those things that was just, like, dear to me uh, as, a, as a collector. And, it, it, it you know, it's like it resonated with me. So it's like there he was my Superman. I mean, I watched the George Reeves show. I watched all the cartoons, all the filmation, as well as the, the Super Friends and, you know, Challenge of the Super Friends and all that, which was later, I guess. Um, Challenge was, yeah, Challenge of Super Friends was, no. Actually, Challenge of the Super Friends was ended right before this movie came out. Challenge was like September to November of 78, and this movie came out around Christmas. But yeah, I mean... By the time this episode drops, I will have finished covering the uh, Challenge of the Super Friends. Yeah, I I had no trouble accepting Christopher Reeve as Superman because he looked just like he, he should. Like like you would expect, he he was perfect in in you know in, in all aspects of it. This is a, this is a person that really gave into the part. You know, he knew when to, he, he knew when to let the costume do the acting, and he knew you know when to you know assert Clark or whatever. You know, he, he, I guess that's what you get from Juilliard. That that is, <laughs> that's what happens when you put real actors in. The, you know, he took the role seriously. Yes, was, uh, more than you could say of some others. Oh, Adam, right, so. Adam West is fine. Don't 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 besmirch Adam no, no, West. No, 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 he is. But that uh, was a very different. That was a very different. Now George Reeves, you know, he he had his own ideas on the role. You know, he lamented the role after a while. But you know, that's beside the point. You know, I mean, it's just still, Christopher Reeve always had had respect for the role and respect for its effect on society because he did affect society. He affected everybody that saw that movie. I, I don't know back then that there was anyone that didn't like it. But, you know, again, I was a kid at the time, and I thought, you know, it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Right. You, you, were, right, you were right in the demographic this movie was going for. Oh, yeah. All right. So we want that Patrick now. What, what, what's your origin story with this film? So I probably saw Superman 4 before I saw Superman, like in the middle of the day on TV with my mom. And since I was born in 82, so this movie was already in the public consciousness. So there was no... There was no great reveal of it. It was just something that I found out existed. I probably watched it as a TV movie the first several times I saw it. It was on all the time, like on Saturday afternoons, and I'd sit down and catch uh, bits and pieces of it. I was probably seven or eight years old by the time I saw the whole thing all the way through. Really, really liked it, both it and two. And I remember for my ninth birthday, I had to have my parents find Superman 3 somewhere to rent. So I was like, oh, man, one and two are so much fun. I got to see three. But but yeah, it was just it was just one of those things that was like always there. And I was almost take I almost took it for granted as a kid because it was like, you know, my my parents knew about it. There was no, you know, excitement towards it other than, you know, it's it's on and you're a kid and you should watch this. I um, I have a four year old nephew right now who I am trying to instill kind of a sense of awe about Superman in. But we watched um, we watched. Superman the movie and 
parts of Superman Returns simultaneously. Because I was like, you know, see Superman catch a helicopter or see him catch a spaceship. He's like, I want to see him catch a helicopter. All right, now I want to see him catch a spaceship. So we watched, like, the two opening credit sequences back to back. And, you know, I, of course, like Superman Returns opening credit sequence a lot better. But I've watched uh, this part of the movie we're going to talk about. I've watched twice with this kid. So the second time with the um, the ship landing, he was able to tell me everything that was going on, which oh, was really cool. That is cool. Yeah. So he had he probably has more of a more of a sense of awe about this movie than I do. I I, I got more into the movie as I started to listen to uh, the podcasts on geek culture in 2015. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Michael Bailey and you know you Mike who convinced me to uh, buy that three hour blu-ray edition because i'm really hoping for a double disc of both the lester and the uh donner the donner cuts of yeah of two yeah i would i would like to see a donner version of one and two together like the godfather Ooh, (laughs) and that way he'd be able to to change the ending of the original and you know to make it so it works at the end of of two the way it was supposed to originally well, would you move? Would you move the turning back time to the end of two, like he had? That, or that's that's would you the have way to create a new ending for two. No, no, that's the way it was supposed to be done. Donner decided to move the ending to the first film. I, I see. I, I, I didn't know the chronology of all that, but uh, I mean, again, you know, because when you look at the Donner cut of two, they've got that that whole thing in there. It's kind of like a do over, right? Because it was shot that way. Yeah. But Donner did say, I believe, on the commentary that if he got to come back to Superman two, he would have thought of something else. Ah, okay. Well, you know, one thing I'll, I'll add is a, a little bookend. Um, when I took my son to see Man of Steel, he was seven years old. Right. And he was all about the Superman. And so I was sitting there going, I'm going to get an experience much like what my dad got. And, um, of course, the movie was different and it had me walking away with a melancholy feeling that was very hard to describe. Right. I, I didn't dislike the movie. I actually do like it. And I don't mind watching it again from time to time. But my son was just as jazzed coming out of that movie as my sister and I were coming out of this one. And as we're walking down the hallway to exit the theater, we see the double doors. Someone had just let the double doors go and they're starting to close. Now, my son is wearing a Superman uh, long sleeve shirt with a cape on it. Okay. He sees the doors about to shut and he goes, we're not going to make it. And he just makes a beeline straight down there (laughs) and does, you know, both doors, he grabs them and pushes them to the side. Like it's some big super Herculean effort and everybody behind us, there's a bunch of people behind us. And I just hear cool, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And of course we get outside and after he's standing there, arms akimbo and just looking very satisfied with himself. So, yeah, it's like a, a cool experience to, you know, add on to what my dad had. Right. Okay, I'll shut up now. All right. Yeah, my my origin with this film is similar to Pat's. I, was, I guess I'm about two years older than, than Pat is. The movie was was always there. It is alleged that I saw Superman 3 in the theaters, but I would have been two, and I have no memory of being taken to see that movie. You were the crying kid. You were the no, crying apparently, kid. <laughs> apparently, I, no, apparently I was the crying kid a few months later when my mother tried to take me to see a re-release of Snow White, because apparently I must have been some kind of angel kid, or my or my dad was insane, and he brought me to both Return of the Jedi and Superman three. Hmm. And by the time my mother got around to bringing me to uh, Snow White, I wanted no part of it. <laughs> but anyway, this movie was always you know it was always there. We 
it was one of the first VHSs that we owned. I don't know if Brian remembers. There was a version that came out in. I'm not sure when the version came out, but it was in this very thick plastic red case. I don't know where my dad got it from, but it was this huge case you could cut your finger on. You know, we were we were a family that bought VCRs pretty early on, but we didn't buy movies like that that way until '89 when Bat when yeah. Batman came out. You know, because nobody in my family was going to spend a hundred dollars for uh, a tape, and uh, so so we we never got those. But you know, the thing was, we always seemed to be able to get a copy of Superman or you know, whatever movie we wanted to watch, um, somebody we knew or we could always go and get it somehow. Right. I don't know how my father got a hold of that, but I just know that he had it. We, we had Superman 1, the first two films that way. Superman 3 was recorded off of HBO. So, Well, the, I mean, the thing was, I almost would have preferred to have the ABC version because it had all that extra stuff on it. Of course, I you know, didn't hear about the K-Cop version until years later, and that wouldn't have been something we could find back then. But, uh, you know, the thing is when when Superman or Rathacon or any of those movies, you know, showed up on TV, they would always have, you know, a lot of the extra scenes and stuff that you didn't see in the theater. Right. And, uh, you know, so that was also a lot of fun. One of one of those fun things growing up. But, you know, it's not experienced the same way anymore. Now it's, you know, director's cut or deleted scenes or, or whatever. Ah, I just kind of miss it. Yeah, I do, too, because all four Superman films, when they were shown on TV... Had added stuff in them. Yep. Told each film to a lesser uh, to a lesser extent than this one, but extra stuff in all four of them. But yeah, but for me, this film was always was always there. It wasn't my favorite as a kid. As when I was a kid growing up, Superman two was my favorite because you know what, Superman two got you to Superman a lot faster, and a little little little, little more action right away. And as a kid, I was always kind of okay. I'll get through the Krypton, get through the Smallville. Okay, helicopter. <laughs> you know so. But but now I I just appreciate everything this movie's become, every, what what this movie means to this genre in general. I mean, uh, I mean it, everybody says they look they says maybe except for Zack Snyder. Everyone else says that they look to this, uh, and I believe even over at the Marvel movies, Kevin Feige says they watch this movie once a year to kind of remind them of the tone they want to go for. So yeah. even the people making the superhero movies now are paying a high respect to this film. Yeah, and and, and I mean it it makes all the sense because it's it's. Three, you know, it's it's three stories. You know, it's that that origin story, the coming out, and then the the big conflict. Right. And you know, they've got it all in 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 one movie, and it's it flows through it so so easily. You know, there's never a moment where you're there's really never a moment where you're sitting there looking at your watch. No. I mean, I guess as a kid, maybe the early scenes before you actually get you know get to the helicopter. You know, it, maybe you might check out a little bit. I didn't. I, I was right. just en- enraptured, but uh, yeah. And when I say when I was a kid, I was a lot younger than twelve. Mm. Yeah, but and, and, but like you were saying, you no, know, Superman was always a part of your life. You always knew of Superman. Oh, he was always there. Yeah, and same thing with me though. And and that's the weird thing is I can't remember that point in my life where I discovered Superman. I mean, I remember being in like a dentist office and seeing the comic books and go, oh, they got Superman here. And, you know, but I mean, still, I don't remember what was that point in time, because I'm pretty sure the filmation stuff was was running in the, the late 60s. I can't tell you when I actually first became aware of Superman. It's just like always been a part of it, you know, always been a part I, of I, it. I can't either. Yeah. Because yeah, I mean, Superman, Superman was a TV and movie thing for me first through, because when I was a kid growing up, all those years of Super Friends cartoons on ABC. 
and just it just seemed to be continuous through throughout the decades. He, yeah, he had a presence. Mm-hmm. I didn't do the count, but from like he's on almost at least once a year on something from about seventy seven through the ni- through the nineties, almost to two thousand. See, I never saw the Superpowers show. I saw the Ruby Spears show. Well, I did too. On- I remember watching the Ruby Spears show. I don't really remember much about it. It was on really early in the morning. I had to get up really early on a Saturday morning, and most of my friends didn't believe me that that cartoon existed. I remember that. Now, this is like the one that came out. This is the one that came out in the late eighties. Yeah, eighty seven, eighty. And they still had the Superman Lois romance with the uh, because didn't it have? Didn't they actually use the "Can You Read My Mind" theme in that? Then the Ruby Spears. That I don't remember, but it was only thirteen episodes. So it didn't last very long. Yeah. It was sort of post-crisis continuity. Ma and Pa Kent were still alive. Yeah, they they, they took some the, of the John Byrne stuff. Yeah, Lex yeah, was right. the businessman, yeah. All right, and I guess we would be remiss if we didn't mention, uh, to pay our respects to Margot Kidder, who who uh, recently died. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was that was a surprise when... Well, the, she just had not been in the, the news for a good while, and then all of a sudden you hear about that, and it's just a shock. Yeah. So, yeah. So both our Superman and our Lois are looking down on us, and this is the this year actually does mark forty years since this film came out. So wow. what we're gonna do now is I'm gonna take a quick break. I'm gonna play a promo, and then we're gonna come back with the first let's say quarter of Superman the movie. <laughs> Hang around, folks. Are you willing to follow me on a journey and risk getting lost in a swirling maze of past ages, protected only by our red indestructible capes as we break through the final unexplored realm of the time barrier to explore the fantastic Silver Age adventures of the world's greatest hero, Superman? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast as together we'll follow the Man of Steel, his cousin Supergirl, and his closest friends, Perry White, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, Lana Lang, Batman and Robin, and others in Superman's never-ending quest to defend truth and justice in the pages of Action Comics, Superman, World's Finest Comics, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, and Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. Go to the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, available on iTunes and most other podcast aggregators, You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Medium, Flipboard, and Stitcher. And after you listen, feel free to send email to supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And unless you request otherwise, I look forward to reading your comments on future episodes. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape, standard safety equipment for traveling through the time barrier. All right, welcome back, folks. Uh, we're going to uh, now get into uh, our coverage of uh, the beginning of uh, 
Superman the movie, and I grabbed a short synopsis of the part of the movie we're going to cover from Wikipedia. This this is actually this is a horrible synopsis because it skips the entire Phantom Zone villain trial. What? How can you do that? It does. Well, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get into to that in a minute. I have thoughts of whether or not that actually needs to be in this movie, but that's neither here nor there. So after he sentences uh, our three uh, criminals to the Phantom Zone, Jor-El, Jor-El of the Kryptonian High Council believes that the planet will soon be destroyed when its red giant sun goes supernova. Despite this, he fails to convince the other council members. To save his infant son, Kal-El, Jor-El launches him in a spaceship to Earth and makes a very long speech while doing so. He finds a planet with a suitable atmosphere where his dense molecular structure will give the boy superpowers. Shortly after the launch, Krypton's sun explodes, destroying the planet. The ship crash lands on Earth near Smallville, Kansas, which I believe, uh, in this film, Smallville is in Kansas for the first time. Kal-El, who is now three years old, is found by Jonathan and Martha Kent, who are astonished when he lifts their truck. They take it to the farm and raise him as their own, naming him Clark after Martha's maiden name. And uh, when he's 18, after racing a train uh, and having a long talk with his father about why, uh, why he's here, Jonathan has a heart attack and drops dead in the middle of the farm. And we... This portion of the movie that we're going to be covering ends with Jonathan's funeral. So, I guess we'll start with uh, Krypton. Uh, what, well, what are your guys' thoughts uh, on... Uh, actually, can we start with that, that whole beginning thing where, the, where you get the little comic book? Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yes, let's start with the opening credits, because actually that guy died, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he died, he died a few weeks ago, at least as of the recording. Uh, oh, that sucks. How old yeah. is he? Yeah. He was pretty old. Yeah, he was. He He was. His name was uh, Richard Allen Greenberg. He died on June sixteenth, and uh, according to, to to what I read, uh, this movie basically jump started his uh, credits business in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no kidding. I mean, this guy, but he, I mean, he did visual effects and everything, didn't he? Because didn't he work with? Um, oh gosh, the guy that did Terminator uh, on Predator. He might have. I, I don't know much about his career beyond. Uh, Okay, I, 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 I'm actually pulling it up right now. Okay, so, uh, yeah, he worked on Predator, Flash Gordon, Star Trek Nemesis, Timeline. I don't, I don't know that one. Timeline, um, the Michael Craig the movie? Matrix. Sorry? The Michael Craig also did the Matrix. Timeline. Oh, wow. I'll see here. Uh, it's not. I thought you meant the voice of the little kid that narrates at the beginning died. I was like, oh. No, oh, no, no, no. The designer of the, of the opening <laughs> credits. But yes, the the thing with the comic book was so Brian. Actually, when you saw this in the theater, you got two uh, curtain openings. Mm-hmm. That's true. The real curtain, the real curtains, and the movie curtains. In the decade of the 1930s, even the great city of Metropolis was not spared the ravages of the worldwide depression. In the times of fear and confusion, the job of informing the public was the responsibility of the Daily Planet, a great metropolitan newspaper whose reputation for clarity and truth had become a symbol of hope for the city of Metropolis. Yes, and, you know, of course, I'm sitting there looking at that going, wait, which comic is that? And, you know, again, again, (laughs) as a kid, you know, I'm like, I'm sitting there thinking, is that the first Superman comic book? You know, because you you didn't sit there and really hear a lot about action number one. So, you know, you sit there and you look at that thinking this is the first Superman comic book. And then when you get, uh, I, I know they did a reprint of it in like 1980 or 82. And, uh, you know, I got a, a reprint of Action 1, find out that's the you know first one, but it's not at all like the one that they show in the movie. Right. 
And so you're like, what's the deal there? Because apparently that's not even a real comic book. No. That's just a mock-up they made for the movie. And according to uh, Tom Mankiewicz, that whole thing was uh, Richard Donner's idea. And you know, as far as the curtains opening, though, it was at least 2000 when this movie came out on DVD that I actually knew there were curtains there. Oh, yeah. Because the versions I had were so dark that I didn't see anything until you see the June 1938 on the screen. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you something, though. I, there, there's something about the beginning of the John Williams score as the credits are starting to show up and you're getting that first, mm-hmm, you know. Such a slow build. I know, but did uh, that right there just it makes your heart thump with it almost. I remember even as a kid, I was so excited, and that was just like peaking the excitement every time it hit. Oh, yeah. Perfect, perfect music for that. And it brings it right up to the moment that S explodes onto the screen. Yeah. Literally. So those credits, you know, they're something that, I mean, people still talk about today. Obviously, we're doing it right now. Right. Can you think of any other movie where the credits had that big of effect? No, I can't. Not a single one. That's the thing. That's it. This movie is the litmus test for, you know, great credits. There's nothing else that compares. And Panther. And when you think about it, these credits are about six minutes long. Yes. And they don't get boring. They, you know, I mean, the, the score is so good that it, it, keep, it keeps you engaged, you know, and... The way the credits are flying onto the screen. At first they're going towards you, then they're going away from you. And, uh, it, keeps and your, it keeps your eyes engaged. But you're traveling. Right. I mean, you started out you know, in the comic book, and then you shoot up towards the Daily Planet. And now you're making a, 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 a trip across space and time. I mean, before you see Kyle L do it, you're doing it yourself. They're taking you there to Krypton. It was a great great journey. A lot of, a lot of real cool effects they did in there. Yep. And the uh, the credits just coming there shooting at you, you know, it's just one more thing to add to that, the, the spectacle and wonder of it. It's right. really cool. And uh, almost strange seeing the title character is third build. <laughs> yeah, but it's Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman. Right. I mean, <laughs> Martin Brando and Marlon Brando and his famous uh, $11 million for three days' work. <laughs> oh, man. But, if but, I could be so lucky. If we could all be so lucky. <laughs> like you said, we travel through uh, via these credits into the sun, through the sun, and to Krypton, which is this ice planet, different than anything anybody has seen before. So, what do you think when you fir- first saw this Krypton? You know, um, whenever we got something in in the movies, or whenever us as, as geeks got one of our things to finally show up on the screen, whether it was TV or movies, it was always changed from what you knew. But this was the first time that the change didn't bother me. It was just like, wow, this is an alien world. These are really aliens. Because up to that point, everything you knew about Krypton was all like Flash Gordon-y, you know? And it had, you know, it was always very old-fashioned in the way their futuristic stuff, you know, looked. So to see this kind of thing you know see this kind of difference was really really cool and i you know i I didn't have a problem with it i just rolled with it this is the first time oh go ahead brian no no that's what i was gonna ask you know how was it for you guys i mean for me this is you know like the the first time we got something like this by the time you guys were able to see you know to enjoy the movies you were seeing a lot more geek stuff than than you know i had gotten then 
up to that point. It just wasn't, you know, we had a Spider-Man TV series, a Hulk TV series, uh, though I don't think it actually came out by that point. And, you know, I mean, and, and, and those were, you know, bastardized anyway. I mean, they were brilliant how they handled the Hulk, but Spider-Man, they just kind of, you know, schlacked it down. They were they were like procedural stories, you know. For a long time, this was the only Krypton I ever knew. Yep. Because I I probably didn't read John Byrne's Man of Steel until I was about ten or eleven when I started getting getting into the comics. I started collecting the comics full time around the around the time of the death. So I backtracked through most through a lot of the post crisis. Read some Silver and Bronze Age, but hmm. up until then. You know, the Ice Krypton was the only Krypton I knew. So. Yeah, at least the refrigerator... Sorry, Mike. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, refri- it's the, refri- the refrigerator effect. When I saw that movie, I was still being, you know, fed by my by my parents and my environment that this was what Superman was. Right. So I, I didn't have the idea in my head that there were other versions of Krypton. That was probably the first time I saw it. Um, and that idea of the, you know, Jor-El wearing that, you know, the Superman symbol. But that was, you know, the symbol of the House of L. Yeah. You know, put in my brain right then, too, that everybody else had, you know, a symbol that looked similar to Superman's S that walked well, around on Krypton. All the men had symbols. Yeah. The women didn't. One of them did. Well, the the woman who, you know, the other scientist, the guy bring I, I forget her name. Good gosh. Va- Va- Vanda. Vanda. Yeah, Vanda. Yeah, Vanda. Va- uh, Mar- Maria Shell. Um, right. She did not have any any you know anything on her. I don't recall seeing a woman that actually had one. But again, it wasn't something I was going out of my way to look for. In uh, the extended cut, mm-hmm. I don't think she's in the the theatrical version. There is there is another woman on the council with very seventies looking hair. She does have. She seems to have a logo on her chest. She she doesn't say I'm anything. She look, just, I'm gonna have to go back and look for that now. I think she had a logo. Because, like, Lara did not, of course, La- and Vonda, nope, yeah. Vonda didn't either. It's, a, it's easy to miss her. She did, doesn't say anything. She's right. just there. But I didn't. I think I noticed that she had a, that she had a symbol. Maybe uh, one of the men didn't show up for work that day, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> they just threw the costume on her. Hmm. But let's start with the trial. Now, General Zod was kind of a very minor character before this film. It's probably hard to imagine a time when he was just a minor character. This movie kind of launched Zod into uh, the public consciousness, and now everybody does their version of Zod. Yeah, but the Terrence Stamp Zod has lived on over the years as this kind of mythical thing. I mean, there's even websites about, you know, General Zod still ruling the world. There was a guy a few months ago in Canada who, as a protest, put up a political sign that said, Kneel before Zod, and Terrence Stamp's <laughs> picture was on it. yeah. That's great. I mean, yeah, there's there are websites out there. If you sit there and you, you look around, you'll find all sorts of tribute websites to, to General Zod and why he should be ruler of the world. Uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of cool. Very very good very good casting for that too. Right. My only uh, a thought that came to me last night when I was watching this is as much as I like this scene, this doesn't necessarily have to be in this movie because it doesn't pay off in this film at all. No. That's true. And you have and you have to rehash this in Superman two anyway at the beginning. Kind of one of the rules of movie making. So you almost could have left this out, started and started with the council scene. You could, you even could have used the uh, the setup line. This is no fantasy in the council chamber because they didn't they believed his 
hypothesis of the planet exploding to be a fantasy. Yeah, and, and no, and the thing is, if if things had gone the way Richard Donner had wanted, it, I mean, you know, if he had gotten along with the Salkinds a lot better, then I, I well, think no one would, got along with the Salkinds. And, and then Marlon Brando, of course, if they had negotiated things with him properly, so that he stuck around for two, or would let them use his likeness for two. Right. All, he was done. Yeah. Everything they needed from Brando was filmed for both films. Then, you know, you wouldn't have that disconnect between one and two where they had to show it all over again. I, I, I think they, I mean, they, they could have just gone through it in the credits rather than having to, to you know, show non-breaking the guy's neck and and all that right. because it, it disconnected you from what you saw in the first one. So, so either way, obviously the trial is good. It sets up, it sets up something that's going to, I guess we're lucky to actually happen so that this gets to pay off. Yeah, and I think, though, that, that it was brilliant to put it in there because when you when they started the marketing on Superman 2, everybody already knew who they were. Right. And it, it is like, oh, wait, these are bad guys from Krypton. And so that, I mean, that, that created a lot more excitement. You know, just as far as how the movie was put together, the Salkines did some crazy stuff like they did when they did the Three Musketeers movies right. where they were making multiple movies but they only you know put it together as one on on the on the books and sag has a rule the screen actors guild now has what they call the salcon clause yes where you have to reveal how many films you're doing to the actors yeah because didn't they do three didn't they do three three musketeers movies like they had the three musketeers the four musketeers and then there was the female musketeer i believe well I, i knew about the three musketeers and the four musketeers yeah, I'd have to look at that. I'll have to pull up Richard Lester's uh Right, but the reason Richard Lester came on to you know, act as Donner, to go between the Donner and then do Superman 2 is because something was owed from one, from one of the parties. You know, Lester owed them or the Salkinds owed, owed him. And that's kind of how Lester became involved. Yeah. That's... There was some kind of legal uh, messing around uh, with that. Yeah, well, it looks like there was only the three Musketeers and the four Musketeers. I must have... Uh... Mix that up, but because uh, I know that they'd added the female musketeer in there, but they'd filmed it all at the same time, just like they did with Superman, Superman Two, or for or most of it. Zod's uh, speech as he's screaming as, as they're found guilty—that still gives me shivers. The vote must be unanimous, Dorel. It has therefore now become your decision. You alone will condemn us if you wish, and you alone will be held responsible by me. Join us. You have been known to disagree with the council before. Yours could become an important voice in the new order, second only to my own. I offer you a chance for greatness, Jorel. Take it. Join us. You will bow down before me, Jorel. I swear it. No matter that it takes an eternity, you will bow down before me. Both you. And then one day, your ass! Well, you know, for me as a kid, I didn't understand it. When he was sitting there yelling at Jor-El, you know, you will bow down before me, you and one day, and I could have sworn he was saying your ass. Oh, I thought so too. (laughs) (laughs) I thought so too. I I had no idea he was actually saying your errors, and I think at that point in time, I didn't necessarily understand the term. I wasn't sure if he was saying your 
your ass or your ass. I'm like, why would he want his ass? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was one of the two. Right. It didn't come to me to be heirs until a lot later. Maybe once I realized what, when I started knowing what that word meant. Yeah. And, and that's, that's one of those things that years later you finally understand. And it's like, whoa, hey, okay, so that's what, they, that's what he meant. Yeah, you know, one of those things that come to you at 3 in the morning while you're asleep. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Oy. But, you know, the thing is, looking at the three of them, Zod and Nan and Ursa, you know, Jor-El just painted them as to be the worst of the worst. And it was right. and the music, of course, playing along with that gave you some, you know, it, it, it made you feel creepy, especially when, it, when they talked about Ursa. On the woman Ursa, whose perversions and unreasoning hatred of all mankind threatened even the children of the planet Krippen. Oh, yeah. yeah that, that, the music just took a dark turn when he mentions her. You know, Almost as if she's worse than the general. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, of course, you find out late, late, later that she definitely got some issues. <laughs> yeah. She got man issues. But uh, we'd find that out much, much later. Yeah. So, I mean, but what did you guys think of the um, the the court, as it were? The, the faces, or am I stepping on you? No, my, not at all. You know the the, the faces and, and you know sitting there watching that and giving the guilty, guilty. You know, you have heard the evidence. The decision of the council will now be heard. Guilty, 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 guilty. It didn't seem that strange to me because I I think it it had become a trope. By the time I'd seen it, to have tribunals on cartoon shows where mm-hmm. the villains would be punished in similar ways, I can't, I can't name one right now off the top of my head. But at the time, it was just like, oh yeah, this is in this genre of of action. This is what a courtroom scene looks like. Mm-hmm. Now I must have seen Superman two first because I remember watching that and going, oh, Zod's in this movie too, right. <laughs> But, uh, Even you know, as a kid growing up, I uh, I didn't think anything of it. It was just there. You know, when you're a kid, you there's just so many things that you don't when you're an adult. So many things that you just accept at face value with no explanation. Yep. Yeah. The the thing that that it's like I remember when I went to see the Phantom Menace with one of my friends and his nephew, and his nephew was like about ten years old, and I don't remember what scene it was, but I just remember him commenting, "Wow, what a cool effect." And that made me feel sad because, you know, right. we didn't sit there and think that when we were that age. We were just like, wow. You know, you were wowed. You were just like, that was really cool. But you didn't sit there and recognize it as a special effect. You just enjoyed the moment. You know, I lament sometimes that we know too much now about how these things are made. How the sausage is made, as they say. Exactly. Yeah. But I, as far as the heads go, the other night I was watching uh, the last episode of uh, the all-new Super Friends Hour. And... I don't know if any of you are familiar with the uh, DC Comics villain, the, gentle, the Gentleman Ghost. Yes. Oh, yeah, I love him. I okay. want that Lego figure so bad. <laughs> well, well, he's got he's got Wonder Woman and Superman on trial. And he's got all these ghosts around him. And they're sitting, they're sitting there yelling, guilty, 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 guilty. <laughs> like, oh, that, that so reminds me of Superman the movie right there. Even though Superman the movie is not for a year after that. <laughs> really? Yeah, that was 77. Wow, that's great. <laughs> so what about... Like, this actually, I'm watching it thinking, oh, they probably... Oh, they're, they're probably imitating Superman in the movie. I'm like, I oh, don't know, Mike. You got to rewind. This ha- this was a year before that. What about um, now? We all must have seen the cartoon um, 
Pluto's Judgment Day, the Mickey, old Mickey Mouse cartoon before we saw Superman, I imagine. Yes. You know what no, I'm talking no. about? Where uh, so. the cats, the ghost cats, grab Pluto and put him on trial for killing all the cats. Oh my gosh, no. I've never He's seen chained that. chained up in the middle. Of, oh, it's nuts. It's nuts. It is. <laughs> it is nuts. He like goes into like a like a cave that's like shaped like a cat's head. It's got it's got to be on YouTube, but very similar to what you know, just eerie ghost trial. Like Mike was talking about the gentleman ghost, and I know I had seen that before I saw Superman the movie, and that scared the heck out of me, terrified. So I mean, the the Phantom Zone trial was almost uh, was almost tame compared to right to that Mickey Mouse cartoon. And then, then we see, and then in the very next scene, we see all these guys as uh, aristocrats, yep. basically. And th- this can't see what the council is nothing we haven't seen a million times before. The Kirk Allen serial did it. The George Reeves show did it. Oh, the Science Council, as they called it in the comic books and right. such. Right. Jorel comes with his theory about the planet exploding, and they're not buying it. You know, they're pretty much ridiculing him through his face, but. I don't know, what do you think? Marlon Brando, he carries the role of Jor-El with this quiet dignity, almost. He's very confident in what he believes is right. I love that line. I just watched it a few minutes ago. Uh, the facts are not in dispute. It's right. your conclusion we disagree with. Right. Love that. Now, your your uh, synopsis, you know, of course, it made comment about, you know, them saying that the, the sum is going to go over when he actually says the planet will explode. Right. thought that was kind of weird. Well, if you watch the movie, the sun explodes and then takes the planet with it. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's that's definitely the way it looks. And it's like always like bugged me when for that's the one thing that always bugged me is that the planet was what exploded in, in my mind. And so and now it was, I have to it was actually it. years before I noticed like the, the little ball in the bottom right corner of the sun. Hmm. But yeah, the sun explodes and takes the planet with it. And the sun is, is very ominous about this whole sequence. It gets as these scenes go through, it gets bigger and bigger. So it's like almost as if it's coming for the planet. Hmm. So we get our, uh, after this, uh, after the courtroom. Well, not necessarily the courtroom, but uh, we go to, I guess this is Jarrell's re- residence or quarters. And uh, we have Su- Susanna York as Lara, who uh, was very put out by the fact that she had very few lines in this movie. That Jarrell got to do all the talking. It's Marlon Brando. And that was basically... Uh, I was listening to watching the commentary on the uh, director's cut. Now, is this the one with Tom Mankiewicz and yeah. Dick Downer? Which yeah. I've got to say is probably one of, the, one of the better commentaries on any movie out there. If, if you're going to listen to a, of a, of a, listen to a commentary, that's definitely one that you should listen to. Yeah, it is. So ba- basically, uh, Susanna York came up to Tom Mankiewicz and, and asked him, why does he get to talk? Doesn't the mother get to say anything? And he basically says... Marlon Brando is getting paid eleven dollars, uh, eleven dollars, eleven million dollars for three days' work. You bet he's gonna get all the lines. And don't worry, bl- you'll get more in Superman too. Well, she didn't know that <laughs> at the time. Yeah, I know. And uh, it's interesting that the blankets are the only color that we see at all on Krypton. Yeah, it's it's very sterile, very. Right. Antiseptic, you know. Yeah, everything about Krypton, and and of course the the outfits that they're wearing, and all that that luminescence that they have going on about it, you know, every everything is definitely saying to you, you know, really, really alien. Right. But of course, you know, the the the, the question I have is like, was like, why is it, you know, even even here you see the alien planet, they're all wearing the same clothes. 
It's like, you know, and, and again, this it's like the Jerry Seinfeld joke, a silver jumpsuit. That's what we're sticking <laughs> with. <laughs> and but, you know, again, you know, with the way that they did it there with the luminescence, the different symbols and such, it really did work well. Um, I really I, I just thought it was so cool because it was just something you'd never seen on the screen. But and, and Krypton being the way it is, you know, of course, you're you're getting a glimpse at one side of it, one part of it. And so I was just wondering myself, so are they all like underground because it's all ice on the outside? Right. It doesn't seem as though these people go outside at all. Mm-mm. Except for Zod, Nan, and Ursa. Right. Well, yeah, they went way outside. Yeah, they opened the screen door for them, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. It's you know, always funny, during the, during the council scene, the head elder, Trevor Howard's character, he's threatening Jarrell to, uh, that if he uh, creates any panic among the population, they're going to hold him for insurrection. I'm thinking, what population? I've only seen seven people. <laughs> so I don't know what kind of population there is on this planet. But I'm guessing all these little uh, ice houses on the uh, surface, are they all different cities? So there are a few of them. You know, I, I, you know, no one's ever gone into any great detail on what, on, on how it was broken up, what the geography of it all is. So, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of left up to your imagination to sit there and, and, and say, okay, that's... Like Candor, there's uh, Argo City, you know, you know, Kryptonopolis or whatever you want to call it, you know, the right. the various cities that they have there. Of course, you know, and, and again, we don't know if they if they're sh- following any of the Krypton backstory. Did Brainiac already come and shrink Candor and take off with it? Right. You know. No, we don't know any of that. But, All right. So I guess this is a, as good a time as any to ask the question: Do you see anything in this Krypton that? John Byrne may have taken for the Man of Steel miniseries. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what we were talking about with uh, the society being antiseptic, maybe sterile and everything, you know, you can you can see that that, you know, that right there was something that resonated with Byrne. And so he was sitting there and, and able to focus on that as to show what is really wrong with Krypton. Because, I mean, the, the thing is, that they don't say it, you know, in, in Superman, the movie at all, that there's anything wrong with, you know, the people of Krypton. That they're with their society or anything, they're just as happy as a, you know, pagan slop. But in everyone after that that we've seen, there's definitely you know issues with the society as it's grown to become. And I think that the seed of that was the the sterility of the society in the in that movie. Is that what what that resonated with Byrne? So he focused on that and was able to exploit it much more. Right. Showing that you know what Kal El is is you know he's different from all the Kryptonians and and definitely is so yeah that's 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 one thing I'm sure that 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 he took away from that and of course you know I mean you sit there and you look at 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 how he framed his Superman you can tell he he took a lot of that from Chris Reeve right and John Byrne didn't just craft his Krypton from this he I believe I've read on his message board that he pulled the Krypton from a lot of different sources yeah to create the Krypton that. Uh, that he presented to us. All right, so the spaceship is kind of this uh, spherical star-shaped thing. It looks like a pricker burr that you get in the grass out of the weeds. Right. That's, I mean, that's the first thing I thought when I saw that thing flying through space is, God, I don't want to step on it. Right. No, that, that is true. I hate those things. <laughs> I, remember, I remember when I was a kid, I played baseball, and I just picked those things off my pants. But, you know, I, I always did have a question about that ship, too. And I, I don't know if we want to get to it yet. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on here because you've got Jor-El, you know, soliloquy, uh, you know, his soliloquy to Kal-El right. and his bequeathment or bequest, 
I guess you'd call it. You will travel far, my little Colum. But we will never leave you, even in the face of our death. The richness of our lives shall be yours. All that I have, all that I've learned, everything I feel, all this and more, I, I bequeath you, my son. You will carry me inside you all the days of your life. You will make my strength your own. See my life through your eyes, as your life will be seen through mine. The son becomes the father, and the father the, the son. This is all I, all I can send you, Kalel. And all that, and of course, that right there is just like. When you're sitting there watching that as an adult and you've got children of your own and you're just like, wow, I, I just wish there was a way I could present something to my son in the same way that he does this. Right. I mean, the, the baby doesn't you know, recognize it at all. But any father sitting there saying and talk to his son like that, you're just like, wow, OK, that's, ooh, that's right, one of the questions. One of the questions that came to me. Yeah. Watching Jarrell make that speech. Who is Jarrell doing this? Whose benefit is Jarrell doing this for? Is he doing it for the baby who can't understand, or is he doing it for himself? Like, he feels like he needs to say these things before the end. I kind of look at it like um, a thought balloon in a comic book. Right. You know, because a a thought balloon carries so much information in it, and yet there's no way the character actually says all that, gets it all out in the the, the time that there actually is in the events. In that, you know, Jorel had all that, but I mean, I think it was the way of saying, you know, it, it's another way of saying that everything about me is in this crystal. Anything you want to know about me is right here. And as Kal-El is traveling, you know, of course, he's getting told all this stuff uh, in the comic books before Crisis. Superman had uh, the, the perfect memory and he could remember yeah. everything from even when he was a baby. Everything that was ever said to him, everything he ever saw, and I, I kind of think they were they were they were, you know, just going with that a little way because they, again, like I said, you know, Jor-El was sitting there narrating his trip for him and educating him even in those first three years. Jor-El spent a lot of time in front of the podcast microphone recording <laughs> all that. Well, you know that that's the question: Did he actually record all of it, or did, was it just basically his thoughts laid bare, or was it a computer saying? All those things that he just wanted to make sure. Okay, give him this, give him this, give him this, give him this. Probably the uh, Jor-El AI. Yeah. That we that we'll meet later in the film. Exactly. There just wasn't enough room in the spaceship for a floating head. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, the ship breaks out of the glass roof. And I love that moment. Yeah. The way the music just picks up. Well, that that whole sequence was, you know, I mean, there was a little tension and all that. And of course, if you watch the some of the other versions, there's a guy coming to to get Jor-El, but we don't have to talk about that here. Um, well, you know, that scene doesn't really go anywhere because the guy never doesn't make it. Right, right. Now, but I mean, what was he supposed to be? Was he supposed to be like a cop? Yeah, I think he was called either the executioner or the lawgiver or something. Yeah, he was. He was going. Presumably, he was going to arrest Jor-El. Because the first set of Superman trading cards had the had a picture of him. 
before we even saw him in any version you know and it always raised questions with me it's like what what is this guy who is he why do we why do, why didn't we get to see him cuz he looks cool he was like the boba fett of the superman movies <laughs> I thought he was an assassin hmm? patrick you watched the extended version with with him in it yep. you do you get what i'm getting he was going to arrest her up i thought he was going there to kill him or either one he, yeah cuz they said if he tried if he tried to leave krypton they were going to they would kill him what they told him. Whatever Trevor Howard's character meant by the law will be upheld. So he'd go to the Phantom Zone too. That is that is what Yeah, they did say that. He would be banished. They did say that in the council movie. Any attempt by you to create a climate of fear and panic among the populace must be deemed by us an act of insurrection. You would accuse me of insurrection? Does it now become a crime to cherish life? You would be banished to endless imprisonment in the Phantom Zone, the eternal void, which you yourself discovered. Will you abide by the Council's decision? I will remain silent. Neither I nor my wife will leave Krypton. Presumably, yeah, he was about to go to the Phantom Zone, but it's all moot. That guy never makes it. He gets hit by a right. he gets hit by a large beam and is taken out. Or is it was it ice or diamonds or or what is it all? Is it ice? Crystal. It's whatever it is. Whatever it is, it took this guy out pretty good. Yeah. And the uh, extended edition really adds nothing to this other than a whole lot more uh, running and screaming. Running and screaming. There's all your Kryptonians. Yeah, and there's yeah, a well, lot of them. Yeah, the uh, three-hour version just gives you a hell of a lot more running and screaming. You know, in later years, it's like I sit there and compared that that scene showing all the Kryptonians falling and everything to Logan's run. Right. Maybe it's just the way they did the effect. It was very similar, I thought. Well, I promised Aaron I would pose this question that he had in the chat the other day. Uh-huh. He, could, he couldn't make it. <laughs> if they knew they were going to die anyway, why? if Jarrell knew he was, the planet was going to explode, why were they running? Where were they going? You're always looking for that one last chance. And that, that that was my my uh, you know self preservation. They're looking for extend the inevitable for however long they can extend it for. You know, and that's the question. Um, did did the Kryptonians actually think that the Phantom Zone was so horrid that they wouldn't have escaped to it themselves if they could? If it's another chance at life, and it's as Jorel said, it's at least a chance at life. A chance for life, uh, right? It doesn't sound like something that these guys would even consider. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, again, you know, it's one of those things that it, it, it was a good um, device to use in there. So. Wasn't there, there was one version of one version. Wasn't Man of Steel where he where Jarrell wanted to put everybody in the Phantom Zone to survive Krypton? Or was it something else? I'm not it sure. Might have been uh, Superman the Animated Series. Could have been. Hmm. I remember there was one version, I don't remember which one it was off the top of my head, where Jarrell did want to put the planet's population into the Phantom Zone. So that they could survive the destruction of Krypton. Well, you know, even in the the comics, there was the escape zone, which I think um, Van Z or or uh, Zorel, some somebody escaped in there before winding up in Argo City. Or, Just or, as long as we're not going to call it inner space, like the Supergirl movie did. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I'm still hurting from that one. Yeah, that that, that one's uh, so. Pretty, uh, pretty here, here's my question, though. All right, the ship. Breaks through the glass, all right? It, right? it then travels out, Krypton explodes, 
He passes the Kryptonian villains in the Phantom Zone. Yep, they say hi. He goes to the heart of a star on his three-year trip to Earth. Mm -hmm. This ship is amazing and indestructible, and yet when it hits Earth's atmosphere, it melts. Maybe it was programmed to. I'd have to... I'd have to assume that that's the case, but that, that as a kid, you know, that was one of the things that's like, it can go through a star, but it melts on Earth. Wait a minute. Okay, <laughs> how about the, how about this one? All this advanced technology, can't these people invent some goddamn landing gear? <laughs> <laughs> the ship always crashes. It wasn't until Superman the animated series that the ship actually landed. Well, you know, th- this ship actually was brilliant in its conception and you know the execution there because. Uh, all our lives, all we've ever thought of of alien spaceships is some technological wizardry that right. you'd recognize as technological wizardry. If you found this thing in the in the, in the Kent's farm years later, you'd think it was like what, what is this? Some sort of like igloo mock up or something? Right? No, it's you think it was, it was big rock. Well, obviously in the movie they don't take it. Yeah, they. But it's just a big. It looks like a big rock. Right. It, it looks like, you know, it, it doesn't look like a spaceship. And that was the beauty of it. That was the, the beauty of the design. And I, I don't know if they came up with that just because it would be cheaper to do it that way or if they, if they really thought it through all the way. But that that was brilliant. <clears throat> well, this was done. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to give Donna the benefit of the doubt and say that they uh, thought this through. I'm not sure the Salkines were thinking this through, but I think Donna was. <laughs> they were just like, wow, that looks cool. OK. Yeah. How much? Right, exactly. <laughs> and obviously, you know, a lot of stuff at the time, you know, space was just black with a few, uh, with some pinholes for stars. Ruth. This looked turbulent, almost living space. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it flew through stuff. There were nebulas, stars. And great music. And and spectacular music, yes. That winding theme as you sit and are traveling through that, that gave you that that feeling of the passage of time and, you know, going an incredibly long distance. And, you know, of course, in the, in the comics, in post-crisis, they basically said Krypton was near Aldebaran, about 50 light years away. Right. But in this, it had to have been, it, it was another galaxy, in fact. So, you know, whether it came from Andromeda or some other place like that. Well, during the speech, Jarrell said he'll pass through three different galaxies. And that right there is really an interesting thing because you sit there and you think about the distance between galaxies and the fact that he would go through three just to get to Earth. How did the Kryptonians even find Earth? Right. Now, this ship was really moving. The Fermi Paradox was going double time on those guys there. Right. (laughs) And not only that, time is marked by the fact that the kid is aging. You can see the kid aging in the ship. Yeah, now, how were they, the the question was, like, how were they nourishing him and everything? Obviously, he wasn't being fed food, so there was no waste or anything. It seemed like they had to just provide him with enough of, uh, I guess, like the yellow sun energy or whatever to sustain him. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Again, something I never thought of. I, I, I'm, unfortunately, I sit there and I think all these things, especially when I was a little kid, you know, I, I'd see in these movies where people would sit there and they travel all around, they get in taxi cabs, they get on buses and trains and stuff like that. Where do they get all the money to travel all the time? They don't seem to do anything to make money. And so when I'm watching a movie like this and I see him in the spaceship, I say, when does he go to the bathroom and who cleans it up? And, and I mean, he's just a baby. Is there anyone changing his diaper? These are well, no, because I'm sitting there no, thinking of as a little kid. <laughs> Yeah, he, he went into the ship naked. 
This is true. But he had all these blankets. But they didn't even wrap him in the blanket. They just put the blanket down and then put him in. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even wrapped up. Do you think Martha washed those blankets? I hope so. <laughs> Probably ruined her washing machine, too. <laughs> I mean... Or she had to do them in... She probably did them in the sink or the the basin. I mean, you just take off a, baby, a baby's diaper for a second and it starts peeing. You know? Can you <laughs> yeah. imagine th- a three-year stench in that ship? Oh, man. Whew. But uh, it, it, like I said, I, I, I assumed later that uh, that it was he was being fed the right type of energy or whatever to sustain right. him. So he didn't have any bodily waste. I like to assume that Jarrell has thought of everything. Yes. So the uh, the ship arrives, it kind of, it gets the Earth's atmosphere and it kind of uh, crumbles almost. Like the the spikes just curl, shrivel up. Mm-hmm. And then... Then it crashes. We get this nice POV shot of the ship coming down onto the ground. And then lands right in front of the Kents who appear to be on like this must be Sunday because they look like they're on their way home from church. Yes. The way the way they're dressed. So so what are, what are our thoughts on Phyllis on Glenn Ford and Phyllis Daxter? These are my first version of the Kents. What'd you guys think of, of, of these two? Well, my my first version of the Kents was always the comic books. I mean I, I you know, I didn't see the um the George Reeves origin of Superman until years later after, you know, reading the comics. And, and actually, I think it was I, I saw it like in the 80s and reruns on TV. It wasn't something I saw earlier. And and of course, I, I, I only remember Jonathan Kent from the uh, the first one. If I, if, if, if I don't remember the mother at all. So I get, I get from the George Reeves Superman. I mean, again, it, it's been over, what, 35 years since I've watched right. Watch it. I only saw it once too. It's not something that I saw played over and over. And what I remembered mostly from that was Clark Kent walking in off the balcony to get his job at the Daily Planet. Right. So I don't remember a whole lot. Just the imagery of Jonathan Kent, if he was even called Jonathan, because a lot of back then it was not necessarily. No, in that show it was Sarah and Eben Kent. Yeah, and then of course in the comics I was reading Superman and Superboy. And in you know Superboy, the Kents are still around, and of course you know you got to you you got to see Jonathan Kent in there. He was a little bit more soggy in the midsection, and and uh, very gray haired, glass you know bespectacled, and that was just you know the the you know he was your grand he looked like your grandparents you know he looked like like my 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 granddad, and uh, my granddad had a farm in in, in Missouri, so I, I could really relate to that. And I was like, wait, is my dad Superman? But no, anyway. <laughs> um, but but yeah. So the my my experience with the Kents was all from the comics, and right. I had no problem with Glenn Ford and is it Phyllis Coates? What did you say her name was? Phyllis Baxter. Phyllis Baxter. That's right, because Phyllis Coates was. Um, she was Lois Lane, the first Lois Lane yeah, show on the George. Yeah, but um, you know, I had no trouble accepting them. The only thing is, is I did not ever catch. Uh, the the passages of time that that actually go on bec- with the subtle changes as you watch um, with Ma Kent because everything is based on her hair color right and I didn't catch that as a younger person it wasn't until much you know many years later watching it go oh okay so her hair yeah okay so she's this is years later it still raises questions about you know the timing of things but we'll talk about that later right so they they find. Uh... The baby in the spaceship with all their in all of his glory, and Superman gets his first frontal nudity. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> and I'm always amazed at how calm they are about this. Mm-hmm. 
they just saw a spaceship land and they're just taking them on home. Also, if there's nothing unusual about this at all. Uh, the first thing we got to do when we get home is find out who that boy's proper family is. He hasn't got any. Not around here anyway. Martha, are you thinking what I think you're thinking? We could say he's the child of my cousin in North Dakota. And just now orphaned. Oh, Martha. Jonathan, he's only a baby. Martha, now you saw how we found him, you know. Martha, Clark, Kent, are you listening to what I'm saying? I was, uh, was going to say, it, it is odd that, uh, that Martha calls Jonathan Pa in that scene where uh, he goes down to Does look she? at the... Uh, yeah, calls him Pa. Might have been her pet name for him or something. It's yeah, it's uh, to, it's it's, it's the consolation it. because he always wanted to be a father, and obviously they couldn't. And um, and Brian, I hate to one up you, but my uh, my grandparents were the Kents. Oh really? Nell and Jonathan <laughs> Kent. Yep, my great grandparents, I should say. Yeah, they were Nell and Jonathan Kent, oh and they gosh. were uh, they were they were Kansas farm folks. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, I need you to come over here and lift a tree out of the ground. Okay. <laughs> Yep, I, inher- I inherited it as a middle name, so... I've got some sun lamps here. Might be able to help you, you know, build up your strength. Uh. <laughs> the closest I can claim is I once dated a girl who lived on Lois Lane. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I think I like that more than I liked her. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that's usually how it goes. It's especially in high school. <laughs> yep. Oh, man, I bet she was tired of that, too. So the only thing, uh, you know, Martha does, if it's one of those things you blink if you miss it, but she does make the passing comment about Jonathan's heart as they're changing yeah. the flat tire. Everything you need to know about the Kents is told in those first few minutes. I mean, they it just is. they just put it all right there, and it, it you know, it's all believable, too. And, and you could, it's not said, but they must have had some tr- trouble having a child because they were praying for one. Right. So... Even at that, you know, I mean, because, you know, they did not look, they did not make them to look like they were in their 20s or even 30s at that point, you know? No, right. they, you look at them, they're at least in their 40s. Yeah. And, in my, uh, in my, go ahead. In my, in my head, in my head canon, yeah, the Kents are way past the age when they can actually have kids when they find Clark. Never liked, never liked them being a young couple. But, you know, the, the, the beauty of it all. Of course, I mean, if if you sit there and you look at this movie from a year by year standpoint, and you try to, you, you if you can figure out when he actually landed and and when he was revealed to the public and everything, it's it it's actually very good chronology. They were paying attention to the years and the time and everything. The only thing that doesn't make sense later is the uh, the uh, Bill Haley and the Comet song. Because that seemed like that was like almost ten years later than that song still came been, out. But, because it would have been, been it would have been sixty six nineteen sixty six is when yeah that we see the same with Clark in in the school or the football with the football team sixty six yeah because it's twelve years later when he shows up in Metropolis twelve years, well again that that's I can't actually now, say that's now right that, 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 now obviously there's a little ahead of the game but Superman three establishes that Clark graduated in 65. But, uh, yeah, you're probably right there. Because um, there's the poster on the wall where it lists him as the part of the class of 65. 
Yeah, well, again, you know, there's a couple shifts in time here that are not really obvious. Um, because, and, and again, we'll have to, we'll actually have to talk about that the next time. We're really, it, it's not something we can get into here. Well, we can get into, we can get into it a little, into but, it a little bit. But the thing is, is like, do you, because it's going it's to be all different people doing every different episode. So. Do you get the feeling that the, the scene here where, you know, and I'm, I'm moving ahead, but the scene where, you know, he's doing the whole football thing with the team and, and then running with the train and all that. Do you get the, the feeling that that and Jonathan's death and then the next day when he says he's got to leave, is that the next day? It felt like no. the next day when I was a kid. It did, but. But you watched it, Martha's hair and it goes from brown to gray. Right. Martha's hair is white when he has to leave. So some time has to have passed. Actually, it's silver hair. Well, whatever, whatever the hell it is, it's not the color. She did not go silver in two days. True, true. So yeah, Clark would I'm I'm going to presume it's football season, so this is the fall, right? I'm going to presume Clark finished high school. And and yeah, you have to do that. You you yeah. have to. I mean, because otherwise there would have been at the class reunion. You know, hey, what happened? Right. <laughs> Where'd you go? <laughs> Wait. Because obviously, good football is September and October into November. So the latest it could be is November. And because I looked at Martha's hair during the funeral scene, and it's not white, and it will be white when he leaves. Right. And some time had to pass also, and obviously this is what I'll be talking with, about with the next group. There some time has to pass between Clark finding the crystal and having to leave. Right. Because he has to take time to... Go talk to Ben ar- Hubbard. Go talk to get, it, <laughs> get his ar- arrangements going. Yeah. To take care of the farm. That Ben Hubbard, he's a reliable man. He is. I, I don't. I mean, his his name has shown up in I think several of the movies, but also in in the TV show Smallville. And I'm I'm wondering, did it show up in in Man of Steel lore? No, but Smallville never missed an opportunity to ape something from these movies. And yeah. uh, he was Ben Hubbard was cast in Superman Returns, although his scenes were cut. Oh, oh, that's right, because he was supposed to help help Martha when he he landed, right? Actually, now that I think about it, he he, he is in one scene. He's driving off. He's driving off as right before the ship lands. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then there was a scene in the trailer where he says to Clark, "I heard you flew in," and Clark got this uh, look on his face. <laughs> but <laughs> oh. uh, getting back to the football, getting back to the football game. Well, was it a game or was it practice? It was, nah, you're right. It was practice. But if it's practice, why are there cheerleaders in full outfit? They were practicing so we, too. So we know they're so so we know they're cheerleaders. Okay, I'm sorry. You know, it's like I didn't. I was sitting there saying, was that a, an actual game or was it practice or or what? You know, every year they order those those uniforms and they're not sure if they fit or not. So they've got to all put them on and do the practice cheer and go. Oh, okay, they fit. Hey, whatever works, right? But anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Basically, you see how much crap Clark Clark takes. Yeah, and uh, we get to see uh, not only Jeff E. Jeff East, but we get to see uh, Jeff East wearing Christopher Reeve's hair and, and nose for, and his nose. <laughs> Sorry, and his, and his voice. Yes, there's very little of Jeff East left by the time production was done. Lana, don't bother with these, huh? I'll take them in with the other equipment. Thank you, Clark. Sure. Listen, a whole bunch of us are going up to Mary Ellen's, play some records. Would you like to come? Sure. Sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. Ken can't make it. Still got a lot of work to do. 
What are you talking about? I just finished stacking all the... All that? Oh. Oh, Brad. Hey, come on, Lana. Come on, Lana. Come on, let's go. Come on, he's got to clean I, this bye, up. Bye, Clark. Yeah, bye, Clean Lana. this up, Clark. And he was as surprised as anybody. I mean, he was as surprised as David Prowse was in Star Wars, you know, to find out that his voice was dubbed over. But, you know, the thing was is that there were people trying to get a lot of mileage out of Jeff East. They actually wanted to do a TV series, Adventures of Superboy. Right. But he said, no, I can't can't do it. Uh -uh." Uh-uh. I I don't know why they decided to dub Reeves' voice. I guess he sounded so different. I I think there was that, and it was was a way of creating that, that continuity. And I, I think it actually worked because I, I, I mean, I didn't realize that they had dubbed it until years and years later. Yeah. As a kid. Well, honest, I'll be honest. As a kid, until I, before I knew better, I thought it was Christopher Reeve. Yeah, me too. Me too. Oh, I, I mean, I, I, I always knew it was somebody else. I, I mean, I always knew it was Jeff East, actually, because uh, somehow it was like he had gotten on a, a Johnny Carson or one of the TV shows uh, in the days leading up to the movie coming out. And when, you know, what. Back in that day, you absorbed anything that you could get about something like this. You know, I mean, it, it was an event and it was like one of the, you know, one of the first big events, not not the first because we already had Jaws, we already had Star Wars. But this was a big event like the others and you just wanted to absorb everything you could. And I remember seeing him on a talk show. It may have been Dick Cavett uh, where he was on there talking about all that and already, they had already talked to him about doing the Superboy series before the movie was even out. Well, the Saul kinds wanted to milk every penny out of this as they could. Yeah. Whew. Cause I guess they had the rights to Superboy along with the, the rights to Superman and Supergirl, right? Yeah, they did because when all else failed, the Ilya Saul made the Superboy series. Oh, that's right. That's right. That was a, that was a Saul kind production. <laughs> hmm. They didn't even have Superman anymore. He was, off the gold, gold, Golden Globe and Canon Films before they went under. But the only thing they had left in 1988 was Superboy, and they used it. Mm. They milked every penny out of this franchise they could. Okay. I, I got a question. I'm going to go back to this here. Lana Lang. What did you guys think of Lana Lang? I mean, she only had like a minute screen time at most. I like the Net O'Toole a lot better. Yep. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean it, she had a she had a little more screen time in the uh, super duper long version. But did did it did it do anything more than just? I mean, because they really didn't make her. I, well, I, 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 I she I, had a line where she said that she was he was the nicest boy in the whole school. So it was a little more clear that she had a thing for Clark. Yeah. Okay. I I think they were. And apparently, in real life, uh, Jeff East during the filming of this film had an illicit drunken affair with the uh, girl who played Lana Lang. <laughs> as he as he detailed on on an appearance on our back in Radio KAL Live Days. Oh my gosh, I did not know that. No. <laughs> he, he was talking to Steve Eunice and uh, Mike Bailey. Oh, that's great. They must have been advertising for a sissy spacek type for Lana. Yes. He yeah. Found her and I mean, she was all right, you know. And the 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 character of Brad. Uh, are we to assume this is the same Brad that we meet again in Superman 3? Oh, absolutely. That's what I thought, too. I mean, and this guy was not just a first-class jerk. You could see that he had violence in his future. Right. 
the way that he pushed Lana around. Right. Ugh. Always hated Brad. Right. And uh, so did Clark. And what really comes through in Jeff East's performance is you see the frustration in him. Because he takes a lot of crap, you know, and doesn't do anything about it because he knows he can't. What makes, I guess, this day more important than most is this is the day where it seems like it's going to bubble over. Because the way he throws everything and kicks the football. Yeah. And in that right there, as a kid, watching that scene, you're just like, holy cow, look at that. And you're just thinking it's going to go into orbit or whatever. I, I, I just, as a kid, I love that scene. And, of course, I repeated that scene myself I don't know how many times. I actually got quite good as a, as a, as a punter. So. <laughs> the, the one thing the three-hour cut does, it does double down on how much crap Clark takes from everybody. You know, everybody dumps all the laundry on Clark. <laughs> He's the whipping boy. Yes. And it's handled so much better than, I, mean, I hate to say, but it, it's handled so much better than Man of Steel. Where Man of well, Steel, they, they Man showed of Steel him. just everybody pushing him around and screaming at him. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, like well, again, you know, they handled it so much better in this that, that, that you know, you got examples of, of people putting, you know, putting him down or giving him crap to do. Right. But, but when he talks to his father about it, his father tells him one time, just one time. Right. You, you got a feeling that they did not have that conversation before. No, they it didn't. It didn't have to be repeated. One time is all it took, and it, you know one of the greater you know moments in the movie is what it becomes. But uh, we still haven't gotten past uh, a little race he had. No, he uh, out he races with a train. Not just any train. Look who's in the train. <laughs> what a coincidence! Noel Neal. Noel Neal. Kirk Allen. Well, Kirk Allen, I didn't realize until a lot later. But yeah, that you know, it's unclear in the theatrical cut who that little girl is. Yeah, I don't know. Was it clear to you when? Who did you think? Did you when you saw the film for the first time, Brian? Had no clue. You had no clue who that little girl was, right? Right, because I think if in the theatrical version, of course, you know, there's not even any talking, is there? No, it's just her looking out the window and seeing him, and you know, him doing his little smile and wave and <laughs> goes on. Right, and and you can imagine that any kid seeing that out the window doesn't have to be Lois Lane to have that reaction, right? Mm-hmm. But right. obviously the Seeing the director's cut doubles down on it. Yeah. Reveals that uh, it is Lois. Because we have dialogue from both Lois and her father. Golly! I saw a boy up there running fast as the train! Faster even! <laughs> Lois Lane, you have a writer's gift for invention. I'll say that for you. But, uh, but... Lois, please read your book. No one ever believes me. And this, I believe, is the first time we get Superman alumni thump. Stunt casting. Yeah, I, I, I think you're you're right there. I mean, I, I don't think there was any other way you could have done that. As you have both the original Lois Lane and the original Superman playing Lois Lane's parents. Mm-hmm. Because both Kirk Allen and, Lo- and Noel Neal did the two serials to- together. Yeah, and that type of thing would be repeated much later in Superman Returns. And overdone in every other version of Superman going forward. <laughs> It's to the point where it's almost expected now that someone from the past is going to be in the movie. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you watch the Supergirl series now, it is just a who's who. Yeah, it's a who's who of Superman alumni. Yeah. But I like... Lois and uh, Clark did it a little bit, too. Yes? Uh, I said I'm Lois sh- and Clark did it a little bit, too. I'm just trying to remember what they did on Lois and Clark. Wasn't, uh, I, uh, Jack, Jack Larson played an old 
played an old Jimmy. That's right. Did now Mark McClure? Mark McClure did he didn't show up in Lois and Clark. He showed up on Smallville. Yeah, and and allegedly in Justice League. Oh, the Justice League! Oh my gosh! But in the three times I saw Justice League, I never saw him. Didn't so maybe he didn't Marco didn't Margo Kidder oh. play Lois Lane's mom at, her, uh, at the in the wedding episode of what uh, of Lois and Clark? No, well, that was Phyllis Coates in the first, at the end when she was marrying Luther. Phyllis oh. Coates came back for that. Okay. And then in season three, his mom was recast. Marco Kidder was uh, Christopher Reeve's assistant in Smallville. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, that's when they right. couldn't get Christopher Reeve, they brought Margo Kidder in. Well, I think that might have been after Christopher Reeve died. I think. Yeah. Hmm. They 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 brought her in. Yeah. But yeah, between between Smallville and uh, Supergirl, they've both gone to town on it. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's great. I I don't have a problem with that. I I I enjoy it. You know, it's one of those things you you expect now. You know, I like that the actors that the previous actors want to come back. Yes. Hmm. So he raced a train. He did, and he won. <laughs> you know, and, and of course, you know, it's like to sit there and think about that for a moment. That you know, of course, uh, they they did the effect was so interesting the way they did it. You didn't question, you know, that it didn't look like his feet were actually touching the ground as a kid. You're just like, wow, he's going so fast. And then he has that little. Well, in reality, his feet weren't touching the ground. Yeah. They had him on some sort of gimbal, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, a gimbal or a crane, one of the two. And then he does that little pouring on his speed once he sees the the crossing and the train's about to get there. And as he jumps over it, you're thinking, what if he did, you know, missed and the train had hit him? Would it hurt the train? Oh, it would hurt the train. <laughs> it would it hurt, hurt the train. Yeah, definitely more. It would hurt him. Although I don't know, I don't know what his power level is here. Oh, you got to figure he's he's you know I mean he's been soaking up the earth you know the the sun's rays for you know eighteen years or however you know seventeen eighteen years uh, sorry that would that would be more like fourteen or fifteen years. Well, I mean, what, I mean, I don't think the train would hurt him, but would it knock him down? I, I you know I mean again it would hit him and you know he hadn't figured out how to fly yet. No, he definitely wasn't flying. Yet. So he it would have knocked him you know would have knocked him one way or the other but you know how he had landed you never know of course Superman Returns gave a, a little bit on that too because it really made him look like uh, he was pretty strong tough and everything but that he could still be physically hurt because of how he would cover his face but again that's you know Brian Singer's well, version of it well this this movie established how strong he was as he lifted the uh, the truck as a baby yes which oh it's something I didn't I, I didn't question I didn't ask. Did the jack fall on its own, or did him... The jack fell on its own. Or did the baby mess up with the back of the truck, cause the jack to fall? I think the jack fell on its own. Yeah, it looked like the... It, it seemed like the jack had fallen on its own. Because there's a clip right before that where you see Martha kind of looking around wondering what the kid... Almost like she's saying, what is that kid up to? <laughs> <laughs> then the jack... Yeah, but then the jack falls, and... Like, he catches it, and then lifts the truck. Yeah, and he looks so proud of himself. <laughs> Wouldn't you be? Well, yeah, because I'll be honest, I, I have an 11-month-old right now. So now every time every time she does something, she's just starting to walk. Revel in these times. Revel. So now every time she, she does something, she looks at us, like, gives us this little smile. like, <laughs> yeah, I did that. You're in trouble now. So, yes, you yes, are. You're about to learn just how tenacious she is. Yes. So I do believe, though, this train is the only indication we have that Smallville's in Kansas. As the train says, it's never actually mentioned in the movie. Hmm. But the... The train does say Kansas, right? I'm right on the front. Yeah. I mean, everything else just screams America's heartland. Mm-hmm. It does. Recreated in Canada. Recreated in Canada because the film crew was British. So, now, is anybody going to talk about the um, the incredibly high-water pants that Clark is wearing? 
It was the 70s, wasn't it? Oh, no. I don't it's know. Six, that might not have been the... This is the 60s. It's the mid-60s. I mean, if he graduates in 65, then, yeah, it's the mid-60s. And th- those are some really ugly high-water pants he's got going up there because they're just, like, almost, what, four or five inches off the ankle. Yeah, he's uh, he's showing some sock there. Yeah, a lot of sock. And Looks like he's expecting a flood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and of course, well, uh, that's that's where the car goes by, and the car is playing "Rock Around the Clock" by Bell Haley and the Comets, which is from 1957. Is that right? Okay, so at least it's uh, it can exist. Yeah. Yes. It's just you know that 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 also threw me off uh, on when it you know what year it was, but you know we find out later. I mean, if you go from 1978 back on everything, you can see where where it all begins. Well, in, in the uh, the the Luther scene, Luthor says the planet explodes in four, in 48 and takes three years to get to Earth, so that puts his landing at fit in 51. And if he's three years old, this is. 15 years later, so it's 65. It's unclear how old Clark is at this moment. No, I mean, because we don't know how much time passes between here and when he leaves the farm. Right. I like to think of Smallville always being a place that's a little bit frozen in time. Yes. It's a little bit before current era. So they probably just got the movie um, Blackboard Jungle, and they were calling the radio station and telling the DJ, like, you got to find that Bill Haley record. <laughs> we just watched. <laughs> well, that was also a time too where certain music would start in the cities and and take years to get out to the country. True, true, true. They also probably couldn't play a, in a in a PG movie the what was being played in the country at that time. No, well, they could have played some Beatles. No, it would have been like Red Sovine or <laughs> no, no, in Kansas and in the, they probably would have been playing some of that weird uh, hardcore country from back in the day oh man i'm so glad they didn't <laughs> I, I, again yeah. you know there i don't know how much thought went into putting bill haley in the comets there versus any other song Probably but it, it 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 does give you you know it sits there and says yeah this is something old-fashioned this is all that brad's car of course was an older older vehicle i don't remember what type of car that was but it was a it was a 50s model Mid mid fifties model, you know, convertible. Kind of reminded me of you, kind of your fifties roadster. Yeah, and so he's playing fifties songs, but it, you know, it's definitely the sixties, as far as we can tell. At least some point in there, yeah. it's going to be, you know, so basically sometime between the ages of, of, of fifteen and eighteen. Also, a time when cars lasted, also. Yeah, this is true. So of course, uh, you know, he shows off for his friends, which right. aren't really his friends. He's showing off a lot. Oh, yes. And uh, then, of course, Pa Kent sees him. And you can see right away he's got that disapproving look. And I love the line from Clark. Um, I didn't mean to show off, Pa. It's just that guys like that Brad, I just want to tear him apart. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know I shouldn't. Yeah, I know. You can do all these amazing things, and sometimes you think that you will just go bust unless you can tell people about it, huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, every time I get the football, I can make a touchdown. <laughs> that's for sure. Every time. Yeah. I mean, is it showing off and somebody's doing the things he's capable of doing? Is, is no. a bird showing off when it flies? No. No, now, you listen to me. When you first came to us, 
We thought that people would come and take you away because when they found out, you know, the things you could do, and that worried us a lot. But then a man gets older and he thinks very differently and things get very clear. And there's one thing I do know, son, and that is you are here for a reason. I don't know whose reason, whatever the reason is, you know, maybe it's because... Um, I don't know, it's... Uh, but I do know one thing. It's not to score touchdowns. Huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> you know, you watch, you know, Pac at this point there is, he gets it, and there's no judgment either. Mm-mm. You know, you know, he gets it, he knows, and you're right, this is the, this does seem like the first time that they are, they had this conversation. It's not like in the in the Superboy comics of the time where they keep telling him when you you when you become Superman eventually. Right. <laughs> this is the first time that and you know either of that did them mention that that never bothered me. That never you know the thing is there was friends that I had that said you know it's like wait wait a minute it's Superman was Superboy how come we didn't see him as Superboy you know and I'm just it, it never bothered me that 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 they skipped all that and just made him go you know to be Superman. I mean, it's a two and a half hour movie. It's just not the time, not, not enough time. No, no. I mean, but they didn't need all that. I think adding all that would just have made it very difficult. It's. I mean, this and, is. Just... And you know what? I mean, obviously, we're not we're not going to be talking about this part of the movie with us, this group at least. But if you have a Superboy earlier on, it takes away from Superman's eventual reveal later in the film. Absolutely. John Byrne realized when he did Man of Steel. Yep. No, that was different from what I read, and. Brian can correct can correct me if I'm wrong here. I th- looking back, I believe Byrne has said it since he didn't get the Ground Zero reboot that he was expecting. If he knew then what he basically if he knew then what he knew now, he would have left Superboy in. He wouldn't have done Superman if he knew <laughs> then what he knows now. I mean, he he, well, he said in an interview that he he probably just wouldn't do Superman at all. Right, but yeah, but that that's now, you know. But he, I mean, he was the one saying about Superboy. If we take this out, you're going to screw up the Legion. Yeah, uh, just screws up everything. But again, he didn't care about the Legion. I mean, he he didn't he did he never really read the Legion or liked the Legion. He just thought that there was something a little too silly about about the way, them and the way they were represented in the comics. But you know, well, the, the the way Byrne frames it now, at least, and I don't know what the case was in 1986 or five whenever whenever he started. But the way he says that now, he says that he was willing to work in the uh, in the Bronze Age uh, world. No, I'm, I'm sorry, would you say that again? Burns said he was willing to work in the pre-crisis continuity. Yeah, and, and that would have been fine. I, I, mean, right. I think as readers, I don't think that we would have had a problem because all he would do is use the things that he liked and ignore right. the things that were silly. Like like the 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 super cat, the super horse, the super monkey, uh, you know, and and all the various you know different colors of kryptonite. Oh God! If Bob Fisher were here, there'd be a war. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need it here. There's there's no room in the story in the story for it, for Superboy. Mm. Yeah, no, no. I, I again, like I said, it didn't bother me in no. in the slightest. Um, it made the movie all the better for it, I believe. Right. Whew. But um, still, you know, again, when you get to this part, though, what you're getting are some of the most important themes of the whole movie. 
And uh, all the important themes are coming with this in the next, you know, 10, 15 minutes. Right. And this right here being by far the most important out of all of them. And I'm not talking about the actual you are here for a reason speech. No. But for all the powers. All those things I can do. All those powers. And I couldn't even save him. And I think that's why Jeff East had to be dubbed. Yeah. Christopher Reeves' voice had to say that line mm-hmm. in order for it to resonate later in the film. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And there's another thing that was set up here that we see later in the movie. And that is, of course, they're walking along and they're having that conversation. And then Clark says, let's run. Right. Oops, big mistake. Clark goes off to the barn with the dog. Right. And then Jonathan, you know, he realized something's wrong. He's checking his pulse. And it's a beautifully acted moment. I mean, he, you know, because he's got that, I can't say anything to anybody. can't do anything. He's trying to call, but he can't. Yeah. And he just, he just falls. The uh, the oh my was improvised by Glenn Ford. He got it from George Takei? Maybe. I don't know. Shatner did too, apparently. (laughs) Well, no. No, it was oh no. It was oh no. Instead of uh, just the oh my, it would have been oh my. Yeah. No, it was oh no. <laughs> was it? I thought it was oh my. It was oh no. Well, whatever it was, uh, it was not scripted. Yeah. Oh no. But, you know, the thing is, Clark sits there, you know, and Martha sees him on the ground and she calls out his name. Clark then, you know, all of a sudden he freezes. Right. And and that's something that actually we see later in, in the movie, that when something of any magnitude does happen around him, he actually freezes. And I thought that was actually very interesting, very telling, you know, both, both actors, you know, did that and they did it very well. In fact, that moment where, you know, you're for all intents and purposes, the fastest man on the planet. Mm -hmm. And yet this is the moment that you can't get to him. I was going to say back, we were talking about the train. If a train hit Superman, when he wasn't paying attention the train would be destroyed and he'd turn around and, um, you know, just be like, oh, God, a train hit me and it was it was destroyed. But if he was looking at it and it was coming toward him, he'd react like a human. He'd he'd, be, he'd throw himself back. You know, he he flinches if he sees a punch coming. Well, you remember the movie he ran um, up and punched him in the back of the head or something and he couldn't hear you. He would it would just your hand would shatter. Right. But you saw you saw Hancock, right? Yes. yes. And you saw what happened when the train hit Hancock. And Hancock just, he was there, he was braced. But when Clark was running in front of that train, you know, he had speed, momentum, inertia, everything going there. So that if the train had hit him, he would just go off in one direction, right. continue on, but just in a different direction. Mm-hmm. You know, it, he would have... The train might have spun him out a little bit. Yeah, he, he, he probably would have dented the train. It wouldn't have been a big dent, not like what happened in Hancock. Uh, even if he was aware or wasn't aware it was there, I still think that he would probably ricochet rather than, you know, just destroy it, you know. But that's just, you know, in that moment. Uh, if he had just been standing someplace not paying attention and he got hit by something that massive, that big, he probably would, would start moving the moment that it hit him. And that's just the way his reflexes would work. But again, you know, sitting there talking comic book logic. <laughs> Right. Right. If you, if you use real physics, every time he stopped the train, uh, the train will buckle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yes, he, he does freeze for a moment, and 
I the movie seems to imply that he's dead as soon as he hits the ground. Yeah, it does. There seem- are, there's no scene with a doctor or in a hospital or anything. No. So. And then the next thing you see is the funeral. Right. And that that um, quickly made church. And yeah, you know what? Some of us supposed to be in Kansas, and that funeral was not in Kansas. There were no mountains like that in Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> That's like Rumble in the Bronx. There's no mountains in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> just the man-made ones. Yes. Whew. Yeah, you know, that. but that scene, though, that was just so... It, it was um, all of a sudden I'm blanking on the uh, artist, the Americana artist. Um, uh, Norm, Norm Rockwell. Rockwell. Yeah, Rockwell. I mean, that was it, was it was a Rockwell scene right there. Yeah. And it was so perfectly done all the way to the point where Clark picks the flower... As they're walking off, you figure one of those guys was, was Ben Hubbard. Maybe wondering, okay, is Martha free now? Huh. <laughs> oh, I don't know. They're all get, they're all giving a respectful distance, mm-hmm. and of course, the, Clark uttering the famous phrase. Yep, all those things I could do with a little powers. Like I said, this had to be Christopher Reeves' voice right here. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're you're. It doesn't you're, work. It, if you hear Jeff East's voice in Superman's head later in the film, it just doesn't work. No. Wow. And then that's kind of where this uh, section of uh, the movie ends. They they walk off and the movie continues. But we're not going to continue because it's almost two hours already. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know. So I would like to, uh, you know, first and foremost, thank you guys for coming on. Oh, thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. You know, when I sent out the, uh, the, the message uh, about a month or so ago now, I expected half of the people in there to just kind of leave the conversation. Then 20 people said they were interested. Now i got to figure out how to juggle all the shirts. <laughs> well, I, I enjoy doing this, and if you need me back for anything else, be sure to let me know. I will. It's in my power. And uh, I'm sure I'll be on with you again soon, uh, in August. Once I think by the time this drops, we'll be toward the end of Season uh, 4 of Fear of the Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, I may show up on uh, uh, Weekly Heroics... Uh, if if he's going to do some uh, preacher more preacher shows, um, definitely enjoying that show, uh, the, the the TV uh, series Preacher. All right, yeah, we all got to go. So Brian, why don't you tell the good people where they can find you? Oh, okay, on the Two True Freaks Network, you can find me uh, every so often putting out a show called Third Degree Burn, where Tim Elliott and I talk about all things John Byrne. And uh, I also show up on Fear of the Walking Dead cast, and my wife uh, joins me, and Scott McGregor, and Mike here joins us from time to time. I'm there all the time. You're all the time, yeah. I'm the I'm the I'm the guest that showed up and never left. And Patrick, you've you've been on there, haven't you? Yeah, I've been on both. Uh, not Fear of the Walking Dead. I've been on Weekly Heroic, Mindless ah, Dribble, and my regular podcast. You can just find on Libsyn and iTunes is uh, Next Generation's First Generation of Star Trek: The Next Generation Commentary Podcast. All right, and obviously, if you listen to the show, you can find me right here. Isn't that amazing? You can. Uh, Send an email to the show at manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over in the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at uh, Manascreencast. And next time, I'll be joined by Bob Fisher, Dario Gonzalez, Aaron Henley, and J. David Weeder, and we're going to continue my coverage of Superman the Movie. Well, until then, folks, we're all part of the same team. Good night.
Wrestling Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and samples used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright to original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link to twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the Two True Freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.